about the Chinese virus? I can name Kung Flu. This country will have enough vaccine supply for every adult in America by the end of May. Join Frank Falvey and our roundtable of regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's executive director for health and human rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. March on by our own PJ. March is so fickle, its promises a tickle of warmer days yet to unfold. Yet I remain wary as temperatures vary with tall mounds of snow getting old. But time finds a way to brighten each day with a little more light in the end and the rising of hope on an ascending slope of optimism that we transcend. Lest we let down our God to, spree, to seek springtime's reward as the winter snows fly yet again ahead or behind. March should make up its mind about which season rules in the end. For the coming of spring is a time that can bring new lightness and joy to the heart. Let this be the year that we be of good cheer as the dark days of winter depart. In March, we march on to greet April's dawn as our march of time cadence is led, for time plays its arch as we're marching through March toward a sunnier day just ahead. With each vaccination, we feel jubilation to ease the emotional cost. So let it be done as we welcome the sun, but ne'er forget those we lost. Now, Leah, could you introduce Ashley End? Thanks so much, Frank. We're um, honored today to have our guest panelist, Ashley Eng, who is a sophomore at UMass Amherst. She's studying microbiology, but I actually know her from being a volunteer on my campaign. She's a volunteer in a lot of political campaigns, and she herself is um, very, very active in Brookline, co-directing A Better Brookline, which is an initiative to consider a different structure for our town. Um, she is here to join us on a conversation on COVID, but she's also here to represent the younger generation, which I must say is not as represented on this panel. <laughs> I thought that was my role. <laughs> well, let me say a few words about the subject today of uh, the coronavirus. Things we might hit on as possibilities is easing of the coronavirus restrictions. Can towns and cities override whatever the state is uh, saying? The distribution of the vaccine, how is it going? And what is the equity, equality of the distribution? The opening of schools? Did New York and other states, when they reported people that went from nursing homes to hospitals and died in the hospitals and they reported them as hospital deaths, how did that affect the epidemiology information? And did that 
did that mislead or, or did it have any effect on how we looked at the coronavirus? And how is the coronavirus information reported to epidemiologists? What, what, are they, what are the information are you getting? And who's paying for the shots? Do people have to pay when they go to get a shot? Now, I suggest that, but this panel has a mind of its own, and this panel can go wherever it pleases and wants to go, and please do that. But please, remember this in all of our discussions. As of when March, uh, uh, February 27th, the total deaths from the coronavirus reported was 494,000 deaths. For people 65 and over, 400,000 died, 81%. Between the ages of 45 and 64, 82,000 people died, 16.5%. And under the age of 45, there were only 12,000 deaths, 2.5%, even though the news media loves the tearjerkers. And most of the news media reporting, to me, seems to have uh, been concentrating on, on those tear-jerking moments of young people or families and uh, their deaths. So, that later, could you open up wherever you, wherever you would like to open up with? Thanks, Frank. And obviously the topic of COVID is, is huge. And I'd like to open up with acknowledging, as you said, the, the huge loss. Over the year, exactly a year ago today, um, we had lost one American. I mean, in retrospect, we think there were more, but on all accounts, it was one. And now we're over 500,000. And that is a huge, huge loss. So many families have lost loved ones. But we are in a moment of hope. You know, we have several vaccines, three vaccines that we are using. We have um, a new administration that's taking the science seriously. And we have a challenge ahead. But if, you know, President Biden's goal of vaccinating every American who wants a vaccine by the end of May, there is an end in sight. Now, what the challenge remains is how do we keep um, public health measures in place until everyone who is eligible for the vaccine. So in Massachusetts, I personally think Governor Baker has made a big mistake by opening restaurants up to pretty much full capacity. He's saying, you know, you can have a six foot distance because our workers, our restaurant workers are not vaccinated yet. They have not been put on the eligibility list. It was exciting yesterday that educators were added to the list. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. But more broadly, I think the conversation should be about, you know, what have we learned from this COVID disaster and what can we do better for, for prevention of the future? And the equity pieces you raise, Frank, you're right. Age has been a tremendous um, hitting point. You know, the, the older Americans have been hit so hard, but I don't think we should underestimate um, infection in younger Americans, the workers who didn't die, but we are hearing about long haulers, people who will live with long-term challenges for the rest of their lives. So it's not, it's not a black and white death or survival. Like there's that in between that so many Americans, and you know, if you're 20 and for the rest of your life, you will have 
significant disability because of this, that is something we should care about too. So um, I just, I just want to put it out there that it's not so clear cut that preventing infection in younger Americans isn't important. It is. Um, and the vaccine is our best tool, but it's not our only tool. So I'm going to stop there because, I mean, I think I'll, I'll ask um, Jeff to jump in a little bit about Massachusetts and the mistakes that have happened. I mean, I know the governor was put on the spot by, by our representatives, and I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that. So uh, let me start with, I, I want to give some credit because I am going to be, uh, I am going to be offering some criticism of the governor, but I do want to give some credit uh, before we get into that. So, uh, you know, Massachusetts uh, ranks number one for first doses administered per capita among the states with 5 million people or more. And um, it's, it's been doing a better job in terms of reaching the population. Uh, the statistics that I got uh, most recently is that there have been 1, 1,769,652 um, total cumulative, cumulative doses given. So that's about 25 to 30% of our population in Massachusetts that's had at least one dose. So that's, that's the good news. Um, but no one is going to sit here and say that this rollout has been anything but horrible. And uh, for example, what we witnessed last week with um, bringing the 65 and older into the fold and those with uh, two or more comorbidities. That made a million people eligible for the vaccine at the same time that we knew that there were 50,000 doses available. Who in their right mind thinks it's a good idea to introduce a million people into a lottery for 50,000 uh, vaccine totals. Oops. That just doesn't make sense at all. And then yesterday, we introduced, and look, at I have been pushing for this myself. I wrote my first letter to the governor on February 10th saying, move teachers to the front of the line. We need to get kids back in school, get the teachers vaccinated. There were, uh, and, and it took until yesterday. So, uh, you know, uh, me and my colleagues sent a letter on February 10th. February 23rd, we get a response from the secretary. We're considering it. The Speaker of the House came out and said, "Put move teachers to the front of the line. And then two nights ago, uh, the Senate president said, move teachers to the front of the line. And finally, yesterday, the governor moves teachers to the front of the line, adding an additional 400,000 people to the list of people who are eligible for the vaccine. So now we have 1.4 million people eligible for vaccines, yet um, we have limited doses available. That calls for systemic change in how you roll this out and why we still don't have a pre-registration system in place in Massachusetts. It, it boggles my mind. Uh, but as I said, I gave them some credit, but I'm going to give them some harsh criticism on this rollout. We need to get this uh, in place. So last week, the legislature held the first hearing. Keep in mind, it's been up to the governor for the first year. He has emergency authority, uh, and he's given the ability to make decisions uh, on his own without having to go to the legislature. 
but we've been exhausted by some of the decisions that have made. So we stepped in. We held a hearing last Thursday. It was, uh, it was over six hours. And uh, that was just the first step. There'll be a second hearing next week to follow up. I do believe firmly that the uh, existence of that hearing, the examination that the governor and his staff underwent has led to some changes for the positive. And with another hearing coming up next week, I think you're going to see more changes. And we need to get people vaccinated because that's the, that's the true solution. And if we want kids back in school, we've got to get the teachers vaccinated. We do not want to send teachers, staff, and kids into a school environment where there is anxiety. That's not going to help in this process. So I'll take a break now. I think I've gotten it off my chest. And... Uh, I'd love to hear other folks. Well, I'll continue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, one of the things that's been clear to me as I've watched this from last March is that most of our politicians know nothing about logistics. They know nothing about, and they don't have people on their staff who know anything about logistics. Many of them are probably too young to realize that there have been plans in this country uh, on made and carried out uh, very effectively for mass Im immunizations. Uh, and I go back to the polio di uh, vaccine distribution back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and it appears to me that many of the politicians are in such a rush to make a political statement. Uh, much of it by the media has been characterized as simply wanting to make a show that they ignore the real practical on the ground aspect of at the end of the day, we need all of our citizens vaccinated. We need, we need to have all of our citizens understand how this virus works and they failed at that job. Uh, it's, it's astonishing to me that government has revealed itself to be so inept that not only has it cost lives, but it has exposed, I think, some real fissures in the ability of government to protect and to administer hope for its people. So this is not just a criticism of our current governor, but when you look across the country, you find that in some instances, he looks great compared to some of the other governors who are, again, just trying to either upstage their own poor decisions in the past month, as in Texas, or who have no sense at all for the protection of their people, uh, like, uh, for example, Mississippi or Florida. I would think, Michael, that you're, that you're talking more on a, um, a national level because, you know, we, ha we do have to give some credit to uh, Governor Baker for getting, um, you know, 30% of the population with the doses. And, and you know, I'm not going to criticize him in that respect. Where I, where I do offer the criticism is in the rollout. If you've got a supply issue, you've need to, you need to incorporate that into your rollout. And, uh, you know... It doesn't work when you say, okay, I've got 120,000 doses coming each week. 
if you got 120,000 doses coming each week, why are you opening up to 1.4 million people? You know that's going to destroy the system. The thing out of the hearing last week that disturbed me quite a bit was hearing the uh, people from the software companies say, well, we sold the module to Massachusetts to do a pre-registration system. And then hearing a few hours later, uh, folks from the administration saying, well, it really wasn't a pre-registration system. It's more of an aggregation system. I don't care what you call it, what you refer to it to. You need a pre-registration system. Put it in place. Stop pointing the fingers. Just get the job done. And that goes back to your earlier comment that, you know, we know how to do this in this country. And I'm just surprised that we're not following those protocols. Well, I'm going to, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say a pre-registration system could also help with the fact that the inequities that we're seeing. We know that communities of color especially were hit the hardest. And then we're sort of surprised by the data after the vaccines have been rolled out to say very few have been vaccinated. So if there was a pre-registration system, you could adjust for those issues. You know, if you collected the data on race, uh, ethnicity, on occupation, whether, you know, the irony and people, I have heard so many teachers say to me, I'm not frustrated that, you know, an AD five-year-old is getting vaccinated. I'm frustrated that my friend who is on the list because of something but works from home is being vaccinated before me. So somehow, you know, making sure that people who were actually working not from home, who did live in communities that have been hit the hardest, like some of that, those inequities that I heard loud and clear um, could have been avoided if you pre-registered and you and you had some check boxes to, to go up the list. It, it's complicated, obviously, but it's not insurmountable. And talking a little bit about the racial inequities, I think, you know, Ashley, I want you to jump in here because you wrote a great piece in the Brookline tab about anti-Asian sentiment. So not just with the vaccines, but the general um, climate uh, and how we're talking about COVID. I'd love your input there. Well, I think when it comes to the anti-Asian racism sentiment, it wasn't something that was necessarily surprising when Donald Trump, you know, called it, quote, the China, the China flu. I wouldn't say that I was surprised just given his character, but I think that did open up kind of the harsh reality that many Asian and Asian Americans in this country knew that we were about to enter. And it's tricky because I think it was... I wouldn't say overlooked, but maybe downplayed the actions of Donald Trump in terms of inciting this anti-Asian rhetoric. But to many of people in my community, I think it was pretty loud and clear where we stood in terms of um, our place in this country. But I think circling back to the racial inequity piece, I think more needs to be done with outreach because we can't ignore the historical context. I mean, every time we talk about this or anyone talks about it, of course, Tuskegee is something that comes up. And I think that we do not think that our politicians aren't doing the right things to kind of to really recognize what's happened in the past and address that hesitancy among our black and brown communities, which is something that needs to be done. Well, I'm going to circle back to, and Ashley, I think your points are, are well made. And uh, but this is the this is the premise of my uh, disparagement of Baker and a lot of the elected leaders. Yes, kudos for getting the vaccine out to as many as he could. However, here's what I mean by the logistics. When you look at the data, 
the data on its face, when I know the vaccine is coming, says to me that I can't just make a broad swath and say, okay, all of the people in the nursing homes are going to be vaccinated, and that's all we're going to look at right now. You've got to be able to walk and chew gum and sometimes raise your arms at the same time. There should have been a multi-focus on a whole lot of communities at once. Not only were the elderly susceptible, not only are our first responders susceptible, but when I look at trying to open up the economy, it begs for the adding of teachers and of preschool teachers and transportation workers up front because the economy cannot operate unless we have these folks at their post securing the knowledge that at least I've got a some kind of shield or protection around me. Now, I understand, Jeff, how we've got to give some kudos to the governor, but no, those of us in all of those various communities can say, can't you guys get it together and say, well, we need a broad swath of the community vaccinated all up front and at the same time. And so you set up these, uh, you know, these clinics and I, you know, I give him credit for some of these mass vaccine uh, settings, but you could have designated days. You could have designated hours. You could have designated locations for various segments of the population. And then I think then we're looking at a responsible government. And And that's what the pre-registration system would do. As Natalia had pointed out earlier, if we had that, we could put all this data into a system and roll out and give appointments to those folks who are on the on the list who need to get the vaccine. But to that me, works only uh, that's, one that's, way, though, Jeff. You see, a, an enrollment says, "All right, I'm going to wait for you to come to me." That's and that's part of the problem. There are certain communities where I can't wait for them to pick up the phone or get on their computer. But you, so you can go out to them and visit them and put them on a list. I'm not yes. when I say pre-registration, I'm not saying that I have to reach out and get myself on a list. For those okay. communities that are reluctant, um, you know, I would say, you know, the employer can step in and say, hey, I need to get these employees and upload a list. Uh, to the pre-registration database. Let's get everybody into a database and then let's prioritize from there and push out these vaccines and get them done exactly as you said. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, it's just, how do we do that? The method they've chosen to do it is just not working and it's creating greater anxiety, it's frustrating people, and it's slowing the process down. That's, That's my point. And I think, you know, there was some success. The Reggie Lewis um, site had, you know, black doctors during Black History Month. I think that was a great model. Mobile sites. I'm kind of frustrated that teachers are were told explicitly that they won't be vaccinated in schools. Like that's a very simple, you know, you come to the school, a mobile clinic, and you vaccinate all the teachers on site at the end of a Friday so they can go home and rest. The fact that now, you know, at least in our Brookline Public Schools, we are mobilizing volunteer parents to pair up with a teacher to be going online to try and schedule their meeting. 
then there is no coverage because there aren't that many substitute teachers. Like this is such a mess to be saying, it's up to you, you figure it out. Like you can go and do a max, mass vaccination of all teachers and staff in a school. It's cost effective, it's fast, it's simplified. And yet they're not doing that it's very proactive. And I don't know why. It's Franklin quite, quite frustrating. Franklin could do 750 people in a day. They have the resources and they've shown they did it. They did their first responders. They've already gotten two doses. They could set up a clinic quickly. Now, you know, I want to f uh, follow up on your point. So we have a thousand people who are employed in the Franklin public school system. And if they have to individually go out and get that vaccine and go to a center or do, what, do wherever they have to do it, how do we coordinate coverage for their classroom? How do, we, uh, how do we know when we're going to have people out getting their vaccines? If we did it in one day, you have a professional development day and say, this is vaccine day, you get 750 people done in that day, the other 250 people can be done in another, uh, in another setting. But that just, to me, seems so logical. I sit here and I say, why are we not following logic and doing this the right way. Well, I disagree with your logic and I disagree totally with your premise that teachers should be elevated to the status of first responders and healthcare workers and nursing homes, every nursing home in the state of Massachusetts, every patient should be vaccinated already. Who is dying? Old people are dying. They may not be going out of their house to work, but we're placing the economic uh, recovery of Massachusetts above considering age and who, who is dying. You, Natalie, I appreciate your point about younger people and long haulers, but I do not appreciate the teachers union making such a hard political stand that President Biden is so beholden to that union and to that group of his base. He is no better than President Trump pandering to his base. Yeah, Biden is pandering Frank, to Frank, the Hold on, hold off for a second. Seventy percent of Massachusetts population that's seventy-five years or older has already received their first dose. We're not moving teachers in front of those people who are dying. Okay, we've done that, all right? And, and what we're doing for those folks who are 75 and older who can't get to one of these facilities, we're, we're sending out mobile units to take care of them in their homes. So when I said, let's move teachers to the front of the line, I'm not suggesting that we should move them in front of those people who are extremely susceptible and uh, have dying. We have done them and we've done a good job getting them done, now it's time to move teachers to the front of the line. So I just wanna make sure you understand that uh, this is not a call uh, for Hunger Games. This is a call for uh, logic and doing this in a systemic way. And when, I, when we want teachers to get back into schools and in the classroom, one of the important things is to lower the level of anxiety and lower the level of stress. And one of the ways you do that is you vaccinate those people who are on the front lines. I wouldn't want to be sitting in a classroom with uh, 30 kids. I mean, when COVID does, wasn't around, 
it, you know, you had, uh, you know, teachers getting sick just from the, the ordinary flu and colds and things like that. Now we've uh, heightened the level and we have a, a deadly disease. We owe it to them if we're going to require them to get in front of uh, uh, kids, to give them an opportunity to do it safely. That's all I'm suggesting. One of the other things, Jeff, there are a couple of other points. Number one, you're absolutely right. They're exposed to 30 kids in a classroom, any number of whom might be asymptomatic at some point because, you know, kids tolerate the disease fairly well. But the other element of it is that many of these, most of these teachers go home to families. Those families can contain elders. But then there's this. It's a secondary benefit, but it's an important one. When the, key, when the teachers are prepared to accept all of the students and schools return to normalcy, all of the families of the kids, particularly the moms, benefit because they can go back to work. The moms are not now destined to be shackled by the idea that they can't work because the kids are not in school. So if you end up vaccinating the teachers, the secondary and even the tertiary benefits of doing that with respect to the economy and to related families is absolutely huge. It's very compelling. Yeah. And that's where I think it's, it's why it's so important. You know, in all honesty, Frank, you're right. And they're not at such high, high risk teachers, not as high risk as say restaurant workers. I mean, they're in a room with 30 unmasked, uh, you know, people who are eating. And that is, you know, most schools are, enforcing masking of students unless it's during lunchtime and they're trying to find different ways. So, you know, among the essential workers, clearly healthcare workers have gotten priority. I do think restaurant workers or anyone who is basically exposed to people without their masks for prolonged time, you know, you're a dentist, I think you've already gotten vaccinated. Like that, that is a huge risk. But I think for what Pete said that teachers are so essential to our, how we function and to, you know, gender equality, to kids' mental health, um, to just us getting to some sort of normalcy, it makes sense. And it makes sense for them to feel safe and to be safe. And they're not such, you know, a huge number. I mean, I didn't realize it's 400,000, Jeff, in Massachusetts. So they're not a small number either. Um, but that is, you know, it's something that as a society, we need to figure out both the risk of, of dying, but also the risk of not having these really essential people in the lives of, of you know, of kids who depend on them. Could I, I'd like to... What's happening at the University of Mass as far as teachers and students vaccination goes? Sorry, wait, wait could you repeat that question? Uh, yeah, actually, what's happening at the University of Mass as far as vaccination of teachers and students grow and, and the danger of coronavirus? Has there, is the university had many cases? Yes, um, we have, unfortunately, which is one of the reasons why I decided not to go back this semester. So essentially, the second semester, they decided to open up campus, I want to say to 60% capacity. And as you can imagine, after the first week, they had to go to elevated risk because students were partying and just completely ignoring the rules put in place. And it's a really tricky conversation. And we talked about this in my outbreaks class, whether it's the student's fault, which I personally believe it's the student's fault, but then also it's the institution's fault for opening up the university and really expecting students to comply with these rules because 
let's be honest, lots of students may, don't have the best judgment. Um, and then there's also off-campus students, and you're also putting just the greater Amherst community at risk. Like, I don't think that the residents of Amherst with their families and whatnot are were happy that the university was opening it up, opening up and allowing all these students to come back. If I was a resident of Amherst, I wouldn't be happy given the, just given the reputation of students even without um, this pandemic going on. So I know that they have lowered um, the risk level as they were, students were put in lockdown for two weeks, but I know it's not anywhere near perfect. Do you have an opinion as to why students uh, are not adhering uh, to the risk factors that coronavirus presents, why they're ignoring uh, the risk to themselves and their families? So I think it does kind of go back to this idea where um, people think that it only affects the elderly. So they think, oh, we're so young, it doesn't really matter. Or they might have not seen someone close to them be affected by this um, disease. And the other thing is, I think a lot of them have also already gotten it. So then they think that, oh, like now I have the antibodies for three months, so I should go around and party with my other friends who've gotten it. But we know that you can still get it during those three months and you could be spreading it. But since you can't get tested, you don't actually know. And it's actually something I've heard that in these um, isolation dorms, the students are partying with one another. So I do think that's kind of the mentality among some students who are not the most responsible. Let me add some facts and data too to what uh, Ashley is saying. In the state of Alabama, where I'm a consultant for the Alabama Commission on Higher Education, when the universities opened up their campuses and allowed students to come back to classes, Ashley's description of what happened happened in every single university when they went back and started surveying those students. Uh, again, what Ashley's saying was the predominant uh, reason why students ignored uh, those restrictions that the administration tried to impose upon them. One, the lack of uh, of any fear that they were going to get it seriously. Two, the idea that this is actually behavior that can be anticipated and expected from students. That is their youthfulness, their exuberance, their wanting to uh, be with their friends. And three, the idea that uh, not only are we invulnerable to the disease, but uh, the idea that, again, that's what we came to the university for. Some of those students in a small segment, as a matter of fact, went back to the universities and said, why am we paying you this money if we're going to then be uh, taught remotely? And many of the students, the second semester, decided to do the same thing Ashley did, which is to, uh, look, if I'm going to have to do it remotely, I might as well do it from home. The other piece, too, is the part that I think, Pete, uh, uh, you brought up, which is the community, or I'm sorry, that Ashley brought up, which is the community aspect. In Tuscaloosa, for example, the mayor had to get involved with the university administration because the people of Tuscaloosa were afraid that the students were, be going, to, were going to become super spreaders. Again, surveying across the state of Alabama, it was found that all of those communities where these universities uh, reside were fearful that the students were going to, again, become super spreaders. 
much of what we are looking at, again, is a failure on the part of the administration and government to anticipate that these things will happen. Something universities, though, did do better than, say, Massachusetts is testing, right? So many universities put in place weekly tests of, and and I think that is a big failure of the U.S. overall. Like, we simply did not make testing available, frequent for people who were, you know, not symptomatic. Um, I mean, I've only been tested once this entire time, and that was because I wanted to travel to Maine um, over the summer, and so I, I got tested to go. But, you know, the fact that... I, I don't have access to tests, and but you know, students who have babysat for my children, I will ask them, when was your last test? And they say, oh yeah, I, I get tested every Friday. I just got, a, you know, it's negative. So somehow the testing, they, they got better than us. And, and that is a huge failure that we haven't mentioned yet. And if we want to go back to normal testing and home testing that is becoming more available may become part of our new normal, like being able to know whether you are um, sick or not. You know, the testing element, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Natalia, because that was the, the thing that impressed me the most about the higher ed. And as you know, in the last session of the legislature, I chaired the higher ed committee. So I was very intimately involved in the decision making that they were, they were doing. And they actually had a task force assembled that was uh, led by President Laurie Leshen from uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Uh, and they would convene to talk about uh, the best ways to implement testing. They came up with protocols uh, throughout the state. I was constantly urging them, and I know some of the schools did it, uh, to actually do wastewater testing. So that would uh, give you three days advance notice uh, of a problem at your institution so that, you know, if your individual testing wasn't picking it up, uh, you could determine in a particular building that you had uh, a problem developing three days before anybody would be symptomatic, and then you could ramp up your testing for uh, residents of that particular building. Um, it, it was more successful in a place like Arizona State University did it. They had very good results. Uh, some of the schools in New York and San Diego uh, did it. But, uh, you know, I think the testing made a huge difference uh, some of the schools were able to do it uh, a little better. Northeastern had its own lab. Uh, BU had its own lab. Um, but I will say uh, it was probably the most expensive proposition. Uh, schools were spending millions of dollars to do this type of testing. And some of our smaller schools in Massachusetts simply couldn't afford uh, to do this type of testing. So they opted not to bring their uh, kids back. But I always viewed the campuses uh, as many cities in and of themselves. And if you were going to try and learn uh, best practices, what better place th to do it uh, than at a university? And my final point on that topic, uh, we're lucky we have uh, such uh, esteemed academic institutions uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, the MIT has the Broad Institute, which provided, um, you know, better scaling for colleges by producing a test that could be done for $25, where uh, other testing outfits were charging north of $100 per test. They developed a protocol that could do it at $25 to bring the cost down. So, uh, you know, that was good. And you know, when you try to introduce what the universities were doing and the money that they were spending, and you'd go to a local community and say, hey, you can test your students, 
um, but here's what it's going to cost you. Uh, I saw many jaws drop from local officials saying, we can't afford that type of testing for uh, students and staff. Uh, so, you know, a lot going on in this space, but, uh, you know. Jeff, uh, yeah. can local towns and cities override the governor's opening up of restaurants? Do, do, do towns and cities have the authority to impose harder restrictions than the governor is suggesting? There are, there are certain decisions that are certainly reserved to our local boards of health, and uh, they certainly can be more stringent. And I, I would dare say the city of Boston is a prime example. When the governor announced that uh, he was going to open restaurants this week, City of Boston, Mayor of Boston, got on the uh, uh, on the airwaves and said, "In Boston, we're going to delay that opening, and I, I believe they've delayed it until April." Um, so, boards of health have a lot of uh, of leeway in this decision making, and uh, you know, I that's a good thing. They know their communities. They not every community of of all 351 in the Commonwealth experience. Uh, the uh, the virus the same way they don't have the same number of levels so uh, let's rely on our local authorities to do what's right for their particular community another reason that you love the point get involved locally in your community because that is where you're going to be most affected you love that point Jeff and you know I love the fact that Ashley is here and Ashley is working on uh, an item that's uh, important to her for the town of Brookline, which she'd like it to become the city. Well, uh, Franklin was one of the first communities in Massachusetts to uh, operate as a city. We are legally known as the city known as the town of Franklin. So um, check us out. I'd like to uh, sort of jump in and zoom back a little bit and, and return to the topic of, of you know, the gaffes and, and so on during the rollout. Uh, you know, we've got the federal government and the role they did or did not play. There was the variability of the last administration pushing responsibility to the states out of convenience, claiming control when they wanted it uh, at the federal level and going back and forth without a lot of rhyme or reason in terms of whether it's a state issue or whether it's a federal issue. Even beyond that, now, and of course, claiming to be, you know, in a wartime mode when they really weren't. Uh, I think the current administration clearly understands with its invocation of the War Powers Act that we are in a form of war. That said, one of the things that uh, is interesting to look at, uh, and we talked about, you know, the evenness or unevenness and the governor's position on things. Uh, first of all, um, I, I think that up until the local rollout, I think the governor did many things well, scrambling for PPE at the outset, uh, bringing uh, reason and calm to the discussion where possible. And, and all, all in, I, I give him high marks and I have some appreciation for the scaling problem uh, that existed as soon as the vaccines were starting to roll out. At the federal level, they were taking total credit for warp, 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 speed, 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 speed. It was a big deal. Uh, you know, they, they just kept on hammering that, you know, warp speed's going to fix everything. Well, here's the truth. 
Warp speed was an endeavor of the private sector. The only thing the federal government did was name it. We're going to throw a bunch of money at warp speed. The private sector is going to cobble up a vaccine and life's going to be great. As soon as the vaccine was available that day, we got to see the publicity photos of UPS and FedEx rolling stuff out. Stock was going to everywhere. And that was their extremely simplistic view of the cure, the, the mechanics of the cure, get trucks and planes rolling. Well, they never addressed, gave any guidance, did anything to assist the states either during or prior to that day, say, hey, it's coming. As soon as the CDC bangs the gavel, you need to step up and do X. There was no guidance on that. And so all of the governors got blindsided, every one of them. Some of them ignored, some of them tried to respond, however badly. And this kind of a, what I'll call, super scaling event, a black swan, is out of the ordinary. Now, what that means is, like every project, you get to choose two. Good, fast, cheap, pick two. You can either do it good and fast, and it won't be cheap. You can do it good and cheap, it won't be fast. Or you can do it fast and cheap, and it won't be good. That's a tenet of private life. Private business knows this axiom very well. The corollary to it is you get to explain one of three things when you're done. You get to explain why it looks so bad, why it costs so much, or why it's not done yet. Now, the public sector, we always talk about government waste, why it costs so much. This is an example where management, the governor, all the other people, were trying to operate within the strictures of their budgets. And yes, the federal government wasn't providing any help. Let's remember that. So here they're trying to solve a problem. They went to an organization that was a nonprofit to work on the website. That organization got caught flat-footed as not being prepared. They tried to do the right thing with the wrong organization. That's what I see. Now, you may know more than me, Jeff, I don't know, but that's what I'm seeing. So at the end of the day, we can all be Monday morning quarterbacks, but I think if we give this a couple of months, especially knowing that the vaccine wasn't really ready yet, you know, Warp Speed promised that there were going to be 10 jillion doses available on day two. That was just not the case. And so the Biden administration has been scrambling to do that. Scrambling. Uh, and so I think 60 days from now, as we get closer and closer to a point in time where we really do see the end coming, we'll have perhaps much better hindsight about what did or didn't work. In some, there are forgotten heroes in this, people we never, ever acknowledge who should be acknowledged, and those are logistics managers. Those are the guys who get it done. And unfortunately, it is an unsung, unappreciated, unknown part of what keeps the country moving. Logistics management is boring, but in a time of crisis, it's your way out. You know, let me add to what you just said, Pete, uh, with one other aspect. All of the private sector, first, let me try to, and I'm going to ask the scientists in the room, uh, Ashley and Natalia, 
to help confirm this. But everything that I've read so far says that Operation Warp Speed was uh, a very, very lucky endeavor because the scientific world had been working on a similar kind of vaccine for COVID, not just last year, not even the year before, but for over 10 to 12 years, they've been working on a vaccine for COVID strains. We got lucky in that there were some additional new approaches to the creation of a vaccine that were tried in the last couple of years that proved successful against COVID-19. Now, first off, can, can, you, uh, can you and Ashley uh, you know, sort of address that? Uh, because there is a misconception, I think, in the general public carried on by the media. Uh, and again, these are editorial choices that the media makes. Again, I'm not going to call it uh, fake media, but they make choices. But their editorializing around this, I think, is unfair to the general public and unfair to the vaccine manufacturers in that they say, oh, you guys put this together in one year. That puts false hope on the future. And I think it's not fair to the American people. Yeah, Michael, you're right. The sort of the mRNA technology had been in development for a very long time. But it is fair to say that there was an unprecedented investment, both financially and the number of scientists who collaborated across the globe. I mean, I think because this was hitting every single country, every single person, like we have never seen such investment in a vaccine, you know, and, and I, I heard people from the HIV advocacy community saying, why, you know, why did you, why do we have a vaccine for COVID and not yet for HIV, you know, like how, and it's because, you know, this was airborne and, you know, spread and therefore it suddenly got every single country's attention. So I think for people who are a little bit hesitant of the vaccine, they've been saying, well, this was developed too quickly they must have cut corners. So it's important to say, no, this was not developed too quickly. It has been in development for a very long time. We were lucky, but we were also, um, you know, it was an unprecedented investment from the scientific community, finance, you know, the people who stepped in. So don't underestimate it because of the speed. Um, but there are obviously, you know, what Pete was saying, this idea of, of good, cheap, um, and fast. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. You said it very convincingly, Pete, but I, I wonder if, if that always has to be too. You know, I'm, I'm sure somebody can give us some examples of where it has been good, fast, and cheap all at the same time. But you won't find it. I won't find it. <laughs> you all right. Won't. You just won't. <laughs> um, but I do want to say that on the good piece, we didn't define good. Um, equity is something that, you know, for many of us in public health, we feel that is the definition of good. And unfortunately, um, that wasn't prioritized. It wasn't, you know, how is this both prevention of COVID going to be, you know, prioritizing those who we knew would be most at risk so that we don't have inequitable deaths and inequitable sort of mor morbidity, but also in the, the vaccine. So good can be defined differently by different people. So I want to just put it out there that the inequities that we have seen to me uh, makes it, you know, the rollout not good, even though in other metrics, you know, where number one, say the metric Jeff was using in terms of what percentage of the population we've covered, but a lot of the community groups that have been advocating for more investment in communities of color, more uh, engagement, you know, they would say this rollout has not been good because of the equity failures. Let me ask 
this one question of of Ashley, which is you mentioned something earlier about making the decision not to go back to campus uh, this semester. And what that says to me is, is that you took positive action on your own part to protect yourself from what you thought were improper decisions on the part of the administration. So how do you feel about it? And how do some of your contemporaries feel about trying to protect themselves from whether it's government or I think lackadaisical or uninformed administrations? I mean, I'm thinking of the people from Mississippi and Texas who are going to be exposed unfairly uh, to government decision. And so what do you think about should citizens be able to protect themselves from improper decisions? Well, I think it's primarily really frustrating because, you know, like ultimately these systems are what affect your daily life. And yes, of course, it's the citizen's responsibility to be responsible and think of, um, think of the greater community. However, it's definitely the place of these institutions and government entities to protect the citizens, because I think that is the role of the government. It's the government for the people, not just for their own interest, which I think is something that unfortunately we see might not necessarily be the case um, in our modern day society. But I think lots of my peers and I are just extremely frustrated because we see ourselves taking action to be responsible and not spread this virus, but then we see, you know, our peers doing the opposite and our institution not acting on um, the things that are happening, which is just, again, I just cannot emphasize this enough. It's just so, so frustrating. Well, I would like to close. I believe that you need to read the source documents uh, of anything, whether it's literature or whatever, you need to go to the absolute source. So the absolute source for this upcoming uh, American Rescue Plan or our economic uh, plan that Biden wants to put forward, to go there, and I hope you have pencils and piece of paper, uh, the listening audience, it is Congress and gov, G-O-V, H dot C O N dot R E S dot thirteen nineteen. Thirteen nineteen is the House bill uh, that you uh, have the ability to uh, scan and read and see actually what's in it and not highlights that the news media chooses one way or the other to promote. Uh, if you want to be really part of an economic solution, you want to see what the plan, in my opinion, is will actually do economically in this area of coronavirus. With that, uh, Pete, do you have our closing statement? Once again, we are always interested in knowing what you think. You can contact us about this or any program that we've run here on More Perfect Union by writing to info, I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. For Frank Falby, Jeff Roy, Natalie Alinos, Dr. Mike Walker, and our special guest, Ashley Eng, I'm Peter Jay. Thanks for listening. This 
is Franklin Public Radio.